Cooking Issues, this is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Rockefeller Center at Newsstand Studios, joined as usual with Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. How you doing, Stas? I'm good. Behind me, uh, which is unusual, so I can't see what you are doing, what kind of faces you're making. It makes me a little <laughs> bit nervous. Should I be nervous? No. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Got uh, John also chilling behind me. How you doing, John? Doing great, thanks. How's uh, the great state of Connecticut treating you? Uh, it was good, but I'm back in back in New York now. Oh, nice. I'm back here for, yeah, a little, nice. like two weeks. We're not going to have time, but uh, I, I guess I shouldn't ask you about your... So, John, for a while, before I go further into the amazing show we have, John, for a while, cooked for tennis uh, superstar <laughs> uh, Djokovic, or as I call him, Naga Djokovic. And uh, interesting in the news, I kind of want to get your read, but then you might not ever get to work for him again if I got your read, so probably you don't want to talk about it, am I right? I don't know if I'll ever get to work for him again anyways, based on some other things, not with him personally, but with, you, with that family. You lit, him um, on, you lit him on fire or you lit the child on fire? He doesn't have a child, but the family he stayed with has a child. Did you light the child on fire? Was it your no. fault? Was it your fault that the burger had the secret sauce on it instead of on the side that caused the meltdown that yes. almost burnt the house down? Yes. John, if I've told you once, I've told you a million times. You got to pay it. You got to get more front of the house in you and pay attention to what sauces are ordered on the burger. Not going to go through the Shake Shack, you know, order for 20 people and look through each individually wrapped burger to see what, you know, make sure there's the one that doesn't have the sauce on it. Yeah, but the kid of the host is the one that has to be right. Yeah, I mean, you're you're correct. In the real life, you're correct. Everyone's important. Yeah, but in the business world, it's that one kid, that one trash can kid, that's important. Hey, uh, not that not that you're a trash can kid. Not that you listen. Uh, All people are are, have some decency in them somewhere, I guess. Uh, (laughs) In California, we got Jackie Molecules. How you doing in our California booth? I'm good. I'm very good. Oh yeah, you sound like. Unusually, what has happened? No, well, I just uh, sorry. I have a little feedback here. Um, I just got back from New York. Actually, I did. I did like a crazy twenty-four hour trip to New York to see my niece for her birthday. So that's so nice. Travel fatigue. So when someone who lives in California gets back from New York, do they double down on the California? Like, yo. No, I'm not. I'm still a New Yorker. Come on, right, I'm still a sure. East Coast guy. Okay, sure. Okay, mm. yeah. and we have Hassan Moore in the booth uh, back again. We thought we we're gonna have Joe back, but Hassan, because Joe's uh, Joe's didn't make it back yet. So how you doing? I'm good. Yeah. Yes. I Glad hear you here. I hear you're excited for today's uh, show, Hassan. Are you an enjoyer of spirits and cocktails? Did you know that on today's program we have as our special guest, uh, actually. You, he was on the show once before, uh, uh, probably a decade ago, right after we started. Famed cocktail writer and historian, Dave Wondrich. Dave, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm, I'm all right. I'm all right. Yeah, I think last time we had you on the show was about 10 years ago. Yeah, it was in another century, it seems like. And, uh, yeah. you know, maybe uh, overseas somewhere. Did we just have <laughs> you on because we wanted to? Or were you, was it after one of your books, like Punch or one of these things? It was probably after one of these books because... Uh, you know, they come out of every once in a while, every 10 years or so. so. Well, you got to keep writing books. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise the world like forgets if you don't keep writing things. It's crazy. Yeah, it's true. But on the other hand, uh, if the world forgets, is that the worst thing in the world? Uh, as long as the world keeps paying you, they can forget. Yeah, the best that, of, exactly. Yeah, so. the, Royalties. The best of all scenarios is that everybody forgets, but the money keeps coming. Yeah. And then you can just go and, you know, sit in a cafe somewhere with one of those little tiny dogs and. 
yeah, and yeah. a beret and, uh, and and drink pastis all morning. That's like those 80s stars. And you're like, oh, they haven't done anything since the 80s. But then you look up their net worth and they're worth like a zillion dollars. You're like, that's the way. Yeah, they're wearing very expensive T-shirts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very good, very good. All right, so let's let's get into this. For those, like, for the, again, couple of people who might not know kind of uh, where you're from. I was talking to my wife, actually, uh, last week when I said you were coming on next week. And uh, I was like, you know, like the cocktail historian, Dave Wonder. She's like, well, that, I mean, there's there's been others, right? And I was like, well, no, no. I was like, there, <laughs> there, there are people that, I mean, look, there are people who are your contemporaries that were interested kind of in specific ingredients like or, or recipes or lost recipes like uh, Ted Hay and all those other people. Uh, and, you know, there also were people who wrote uh, in the 20s, 30s, 40s that included kind of, you know, back of the envelope histories of cocktails, but no one kind of took it seriously as an historical pursuit with the exception of being interested in specific ingredients, right? Before you, like that was it. Well, there there were there were a couple there were a couple people like William Grimes who wrote a very nice scholarly history of the cocktail. After that, that was quit. later. And then he quit and gave away all of his cocktail books. So wait, wait, but can you speak Grimes... a little closer to the mic? Oh, yeah. uh, the other day, yeah. were both okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. I thought his book came out after. No, it was, well, it was one of my inspirations. Oh, it really? came out in the early 90s. And uh, it was like, whoa, this is really cool. Well, I uh, was in grad school. I read the book like a dutiful uh, academic. You know, if you're interested in something, read a book on it. Tip, and so I did. Tip of the hat to Grimy Grimes. Yeah, he was he was good. But but he, you know, he could have he could have kept up with it. But uh, he was too smart for that. <laughs> well, didn't he then go to politics before he came back to do food? Yeah, he did a bunch of stuff, and uh, you know, his he's 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 an interesting person. I used to go and test restaurants with him when he was a, a food critic, and he's an interesting person to talk to. He has a PhD in comp lit, uh, specializing in Russian novels. So, and he's a Russian novel character. Huh. So, what is it about the combination of liking to go to bars, like uh, depressing Russian literature, and kind of politics that kind of fits so well together? Well, there's a strong thread of heavy drinking that goes through all of that. <laughs> I mean, just, you know, back of the envelope calculations here, Dave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, I mean, politicians, ooh, they mop up the sauce. Yeah, yeah. All right. So uh, also I should, uh, oh, call in your questions should you have questions uh, if you're a Patreon listener too. 917-410-1507. That's 917-410-1507. Uh, so a couple of other things I promised we would uh, talk about. Uh, one, you are uh, you have a family compound. It's undisclosed location in Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's a secure location. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's large enough that you can create uh, kind of potato guns and test potato cannons. Uh, kind of more acceptable terminology for them, mm -hmm. and uh, you can launch them in such a way that. You can shoot them farther than is reasonable and still have them take off and land on your property and you can see the, the effect. Oh, yeah. We could we could get a good 400 yards uh, range out of these things uh, if done just exactly right. And uh, we've got a lake that we can shoot them into. So that's uh, that's kind of nice. Now, I want you to describe for me the not so jet now. Speaking of drinking, like I'm sure you're familiar with the Highland Games and the caber toss and all oh, yeah. kinds of strange feats of idiocy that people do <laughs> in cultures that uh, also have a lot of drinking. 
I want you to describe to me the uh, sport of potato catching that you invented with one of your buddies at your family <laughs> compound. Yeah, this was uh, this was a number of years ago when our kids, who are now grown and out of college, were small, and uh, we uh, had a fungi bat. You know, one of those uh, big wide plastic bats and uh we were kind of new to the ways of the potato cannon and uh my friend mike uh runs to the end of the field with a fungi bat and goes okay point it right at me uh we'd been drinking geneva punch the first time i ever made that i found a bottle of old geneva in a uh liquor store upstate which was it was gone from new york city at that point uh and so i was really excited and i drank maybe a little bit too much and so did mike and uh, so uh, he goes, you know, all right, let, let, let's see if we could do this. And I shoot the potato out of the potato cannon. You know, you fill the back with hairspray. There's a chamber and you flick a little Coleman lighter, bang. Uh, and uh, it goes boom and shoots the potato. And if you're standing there shooting the thing, it looks like it's moving fairly slowly. <laughs> uh, but uh, Mike's standing there with the bat and it whizzes right by him. Uh, I was shooting, you know, a bit to the left of him. Uh, or rather to the uh, to his right, let's say, because uh, uh, I, I really didn't want to hit him. Uh, and then uh, second shot, it's even further to the to the right. And, and then he goes, OK, OK, point it right at me. Not a problem. <laughs> so I point it right at him. I shoot it. He goes. Ass over tea kettle uh, <laughs> as a bruise the size of a dinner plate on his upper chest. <laughs> and this, this is one of my profoundest regrets is we we weren't videotaping this because uh, that would have been an absolute winner on the late Bob Saget's America's Funniest Home Videos. I mean, it was just so predictable. Oh my God. And the perfection of it uh, was was it was just uh, such a vignette. You're so lucky no serious damage was done I know, to him. Yeah. I know. If I'd hit him in the head, it would have been really bad. Well, uh, the, the thing about compressed gas is it like, unless you do a lot of calculations, it's really hard to kind of, and also even if you do the calculations, I, I think I told you once I made a, a chicken gun yeah. uh, out of a big chicken cannon. That big. is a big cannon. Yeah, it's huge. That, and, you need uh, a lot of gas for that thing. Yeah, it was, uh, the the bore was six inches. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I, and. It's heavy artillery. And then I, I built the, uh, the gas container, I think out of eight or 10 inch, like, pipe like uh, yeah, yeah. and then like uh you know fully filled it with compressor and then and i was like oh this half inch thick polycarbonate is like polycarbonate's not going to break it's strong so i <laughs> i got that as the target to shoot at yeah and then you know loaded the chicken in do you use you don't need a sabot with a potato because it seals no the we don't itself. use potatoes we use limes actually because oh, they're much more ballistic and you're a cocktail man yeah and also we can get them in in uh, brooklyn for cheap so we uh, bring them up with us yeah by the way, for those of you that don't live in the New York area, some areas of the country, limes are inexpensive. And in New York, if you're paying more than 25 cents for a lime, it's like, what? Yeah, especially in Brooklyn, you can get sometimes uh, when they're in season, you can get 10 for for, for a dollar, uh, which is amazing. Yeah, up in uh, Monaco land, where John's from in, in Connecticut, limes are like a dollar a piece. Like, yeah, oh, well, lime. yeah, I would. It's still worth it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah except for that time of year when they when they're hard as rocks and have no juice. Well, they fly out of a potato gun really well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I guess they don't need to be good. But then, do you have to sabot them, or you just make sure they stick real close? You just I, gauge them uh, to your barrel. I, I gauge them to the barrel, and you know, I might. 
do a little work with a peeler if they're too big. Ah, smart, and smart. We have a rifled barrel. We've got one on a carriage with a rifled you barrel. rifled the barrel? No, I bought it, actually. I, I wish I had done it myself because I would have done a better job. And you hit your buddy with a no, rifle? No, no, oh, that was early, a smooth early. bore. All right, well, that, I, that was the smooth bore muzzle loader. Anyway, <laughs> uh, chickens are not as conformable or uh, as, you know, easy to mess with as lime. So I sabotaged it with... Uh, uh, styrofoam and it does when something that big is flying away from you it looks like it's going slow yeah yeah it's not <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway yeah it completely shattered the uh well the amount of mass there i mean oh that's a god. heavy projectile <laughs> oh my god but oh my god for those yeah. of you so like mine also though compressed air makes i think a different kind of noise i've never fired one of the hairspray ones but it's got to make like a pop or like a yeah it makes a good Good, nice size bang. Yeah, the compressed air ones just make this kind of like frightening whoosh, whoosh. You know what yeah, I mean? That's like, kind of fun though. Yeah, it is kind of <laughs> cool. Uh, you should do, you should, uh, well, I don't do compressed air stuff anymore just because Nastasi and I were supposed to do a video of it. Remember this, Stas? Yeah. And we didn't do it because I told you there was a small but non zero chance that the aged PVC pipe could shatter yeah. and that uh, that would almost certainly kill me if that happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And yeah. you were like, this is some bullcrap, Dave. And I'm like, well, I didn't have the money to build it out of ABS, something that shatters in a less violent way than PVC. Well, you know, you just wrap the whole thing in duct tape. That's what we do. I mean, that's the thing. I think the like once you get up to the like large bores, yeah, yeah. like each individual piece of plastic. Did I ever tell you the story about how I was doing a demonstration on liquid nitrogen safety on what not to do? <laughs> and I put liquid nitrogen into a two liter bottle and sealed it and then put... Uh... Okay, so cocktail people, you know what I'm talking about, the 23-liter Cambro. For those of you that don't do the, the, the Home Depot bucket to do your big batch stuff, like mm -hmm. the 23-liter square Cambro is a standard, 23-quart square Cambro is a, a standard thing. So I was like, oh, I'll stick this thin 2-liter soda bottle inside of the Cambro, and it's not going to break the Cambro. Mm. Loudest thing. Oh, I'll bet. Second I'll... or third loudest thing I've ever done. Yeah. And it completely... Obliterated the Cambro and sent charges. You know, again, lucky that I can. St I was wearing glasses, thankfully. Thankfully, but, yeah, yeah, because uh, yeah, nitro liquid nitrogen is is a beast. I do love it though. I, I love know you it. You do. You're 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 its greatest proponent that I know. It is. Well, it, the thing about liquid nitrogen is is that it's just one of those things that's mesmerizing. Yeah. Like like as a material. Yeah, like is, fire. Yeah, like uh, well, we could talk fire. Well, we'll we'll, we'll talk fire because uh, you are also a big proponent of fire. I like fire. Yeah, I like fire. But none of this is why you're here today. You are here today <laughs> because uh, after many, many years of work, uh, you've just recently come out with the Oxford Companion to Spirits uh, and Cocktails, uh, along with your co-editor, Noah Rothbaum. And how many years was this in the making? You want to talk a little bit about this project? Yeah, this was... Uh, uh, I signed the contract for it in uh, 2012. So it came out last November. That's how long it was in the making. And uh, it was one of those projects that uh, I was skeptical about, but I got talked into it. And uh, it turned out to be just exactly as hairy as I thought it was going to be. And uh, I mean, it's it's a basically an encyclopedia of spirits and cocktails, uh, 860 pages long, 1150 entries, 150 contributors plus, and uh, it covers as much stuff as we could possibly jam in there. Up to 2004, uh, roughly, we, we give or take. We don't have individual entries for people uh, who, whose careers took off 
after 2004 because if we ha- if we did that we'd have infinity book an infinity book yeah, because yeah. so many people took off in the cocktail you know revolution we we talk about them in the book you know it's not like we don't uh like it's not like we're saying they don't exist it's just we can't write individual entries on them and those things are they're they're usually pretty googleable also yeah uh, so for those of you that are looking at it and like, why is my favorite people, 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 pop? Why is it not there? Like, just read. It's always a good idea to read the introduction of a book beforehand to get the tenor mm-hmm. of the book. The other uh, interesting thing about uh, the thing is, is, one, you say, listen, we're actually going to try to do spirits of the world and not just spirits from the coasts of uh, that are drunk on the coasts of uh, the United States. It's not just what you can get in duty free. Right, right, right. That's literally the quote out of the introduction. And um, the other thing you say kind of right off the bat is that it's not a social. What's the word? What's the exact wording you use? It's not that you realize that spirits can be problematic in many ways in their production and in their consumption and in their trade. Uh, but that's not what this book is about. No, I mean, if you want to read about that, there's a, a great book. I don't always agree with it, but it just came out by one of our contributors, Mark Shred, called Breaking the Liquor Machine, about uh, global temperance movements. And uh, it's fascinating, uh, but uh, we don't really cover that. Well, so it's, a, it's a good book? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I don't agree with some of his premises, but... He's got a lot of evidence, and he's a good arguer. And uh, some someday I'll, I'll I'll sit down with him and, and hash it out. My, my favorite book on uh, the temperance movement in the United States is the Furnace book from Yeah, the, mine too. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, J.C. Furnace, uh, beautiful writer. I mean, just beautifully makes written. you want to read it. Yeah, I own his other book, but haven't read it. I forget what it's called. Yeah, I I, I haven't read it either. But that. That uh, his book uh, was it's called like Prohibition or something like that. Or no. Demon, Demon Oh, Rum. Demon Rum. Yeah. yeah. Demon Rum came out in the early 60s. Great book. Uh, I, I, I'm happy to meet another fan, you know, because <laughs> that's a book that more people should know. That's the best book uh, written on, on American Prohibition. Right. And I think maybe he was one of the early people. So like, uh, you know, the, the older you get, the more you see how history is warped by the no offense by the people who write it. Yeah. You know oh, what I mean? Is. And, it is. Yeah. And so I think he was one of the early people to tie the success of the temperance movement. It was well-known, but back to Graham. So Graham was kind of a, Sylvester Graham was kind of a fringe figure prior to his kind of, rehabilitation is the wrong word because no one thinks he's not a lunatic, but I mean, (laughs) his kind of reimportance. I mean, but who among us, really? Yeah, right, right. But his reimportance as a a, uh, important figure in American culture, Mm. it's like Furnace and a couple other people from the 60s to the 80s, because I think no one was talking about Graham in the the 40s and 30s. No, not so much. You know, he was, he was, uh, his time had come and gone and yeah. they had moved on to other things. But well, He was dyspeptic and a bad writer, among yeah. other things. I mean, uh, not a very uh, compelling character. No, and yet he had enough charisma to, like, found all kinds of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Man, Grammite's the worst. Uh, you, you, look, if someone doesn't like liquor, fine. You don't like liquor and you don't like sex? <laughs> I mean, well, it, or exertion or physical exercise. Yeah, we choose one of these things to hate. You're not going to really, uh, life is going to be hard for you. Yeah. 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 It's not, it's not. Okay. So back to the book. Yeah. Uh, another interesting thing before we, uh, how did you get an an interesting choice? Marcus Samuelson chef to write the forward. What was the impetus behind that? Uh, 
Noah and I know and admire Marcus, and we wanted a we wanted a chef because uh, we wanted people to realize that this is part of like the culinary world. You know, it's not just uh, for bartenders. Mm. It's a this book is. Uh, I mean, we've got like. Uh, blurbs also on the back by all a pretty diverse group of people including uh lars from from uh, metallica and uh and uh dan Aykroyd and you know people we we've we've met uh, uh over the years uh and it, it's we really just want to show that you know this is like a huge part of of our lived experience in the world uh impinges on this in some way i have never had dan Aykroyd's uh Vodka, vodka that yeah. is filtered through Herkimer diamonds, which P.S. is quartz from Utica. Yeah, uh, but like, <laughs> like uh, well, it's actually it's it's pretty good, and it was, I, uh, I do Noah and I have our Life Behind Bars podcast, and we had him on, and we spent a lot of time talking about technical stuff. He he was like really into it. He was weirdly into into the the technical side of distilling, and I thought that was cool. Actually, I appreciated that. But like, what's the purpose of the quartz? Just a thing? It's just well, a thing to do? Well, quartz filtering, they, they've been doing, you know, quartz filtering goes goes back and it's a part of Soviet uh, vodka technology. The Soviets spent so much time studying vodka. It shouldn't come as a surprise. It does not. But they but they did. And uh, they learned things like precious metals filtering. Uh, platinum works. Silver works. Gold doesn't. Um, uh, quartz works. You know, some things do, in the, and it's basically a matter of ionization of the uh, of the uh, of, of the alcohol molecules because uh, there's really not much else in there, and uh, it somehow you get different ions. I've tasted against each other at a distillery in in Kyrgyzstan, uh, where, which was the former Soviet distillery for Central Asia. I've tasted uh, silver filtered, charcoal filtered, and quartz filtered vodkas, and they all taste different. What was that grapey stuff that you got back from there? That oh time? yeah, that was that was that was their samogon. Yeah, yeah, but their their vodka was the real treasure at that place. Their vodka was exquisite. I mean, it sounds a little bit like what Nastasi and I used to do at the French culinary. We're like, I don't know, pour it through this, see what happens. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but but it, but then they got like uh, you know people with PhDs in chemistry to 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 walk the cat back and and see like why it happened yeah, yeah, yeah. so that they could do it again i mean we used to stas remember remember when we used to filter we used to buy the cheapest worst vodka for distillation and then we would yeah. like we would just keep filtering it till it didn't taste like poison anymore yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean uh you know vodka's pitiless and yeah. uh anything you'll taste and anything that's in there you'll taste we uh we the school wouldn't give us the money to buy filters real filters uh-huh so we went across the street to the Dwayne Reed. T-shirts? Uh, oh, no. But we bought just the refills for Brita's. Oh, there you go. And then melted quart containers and smashed the filters through <laughs> and then just like <laughs> held them there for hours like idiots. Well, but, okay. But a T-shirt set, it worked. It worked really yeah. well. I mean, it it, it it removed all the character, which is fine because we were going to redistill it anyway. We were yeah. adding our own character to it. Yeah, we yeah, wanted yeah. complete neutral. Do yeah, you I like mean, neutral if, vodkas or do you like vodkas with character? I like them with a little bit of character, actually. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, if I'm mixing drinks, I really don't care. I mean, any vodka is, is, is practically, practically any vodka is fine. But uh, I like I like it drunk Russian style when you pull it out of the freezer and, uh, you know, it's the wine of the north. Yeah. I mean, the freezer tamps down on some of that kind of hospital nose. I don't like a hospital nosy vodka, one that smells like a, 
like uh, I'm about to be disinfected. Yeah, you'll get some of the that certainly in the Eastern European ones, but yeah. uh, you know they're not completely neutral and they're not sweet. I mean, they don't have a that sweet sweet corn nose. Do you that, that dislike when they jack it with glycerin? Yes. Do you do the the hand wiping I, test? I, I try not to because uh, I don't care that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just you know it's vodka. That's the smart thing. Yeah. The smart thing is to not care that much. Except for how it tastes and how you're I mean, if I'm judging it for a spirits competition, then I care very much. And I try to, like, come up with a fair evaluation. And then, you know, I kind of look on that a little askance. But, I mean, Stolichnaya was always my benchmark back in the day. And that was lightly sweetened. It might have had a little glycerin in it. But it was certainly lightly sweetened. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and that's that goes back to the origins of Stolichnaya in the late 40s, mid-40s. By the way. Uh, in the book, there's a picture of an old Smirnoff bottle, and it says that's in your collection, and it says pre pre revolutionary. And I was like, st- I was like, oh wait, we're not the only country with a revolution. Yeah. Me, he means the Russian Revolution. Yeah, I was like, yeah, I mean the Russian Revolution. I mean the Russian Revolution. Hey, uh, Nastasia, has anyone ever referred to us as lightly sweetened? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, now, uh, question. Uh, some things was interesting in the book. How many different contributors? A zillion, three about zillion, about one hundred and fifty. One hundred and fifty. Yeah. So, some of the contributors write in kind of more of a classic encyclopedia style, mm-hmm. and some write giving kind of more color commentary and opinion. And it's interesting how they mix. Like, was that a choice to not impose? encyclopedic style on everyone's uh, contributions or I didn't want to impose it too heavily. You know, if, if the person was a lively writer, as long as it, uh, uh, the information was there, I, I made sure to keep some of that. Uh, some people needed to be reined in some, uh, other people, you know, needed to be a little less encyclopedia style, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, but in general it was, uh, you know, it's not an anthology of writing. It's everything has to kind of pull together. So I spent a lot of time harmonizing entries and making sure that they didn't really contradict each other fundamentally, because that's the problem if you're writing a reference book is like, where does this book stand on this? But uh, I, I left uh, I left some of people's little jokes and things in there. Yeah, well, I mean, because that's kind of the way you write. So I was wondering whether it was more difficult to to kind of deal with writers who wrote in a style that was completely foreign to you as opposed to someone who was like allowed themselves a little bit of leeway in ter- not a leeway in terms of facts i don't mean it yeah, that yeah, way but no but just yeah to 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 make it a little more conversational right right you know i couldn't make it too conversational so some people i definitely had to uh had to uh pull back a little bit into or into the orbit but you know there's a spectrum it's a, it's a big book and it contains a lot of different people's voices uh, sometimes muted, but they're still there. Right, because when you write normally, I mean, your voice is kind of always there. That's one, I think, the hallmarks of your writing is that you like there to be a voice. And it kind of makes sense for someone who's doing a bar history because bars are all about talking to people. Yeah, At least that's always be. been my, uh, my, uh, I guess my, my style guide is always uh, write like you're talking to an intelligent friend, preferably sitting at a bar. Yeah. But, you know, it's like you can I, I came out of academia where that was anathema. 
you know, and and uh, the, some of the writing was so bad and so unreadable. And I, I, I kind of went in the other direction, maybe a little too far, but that's always been how I've done it. So it yeah, people people seem to, to enjoy the work. So. I mean, that's one of the reasons they got me for the book. So it was part of my mandate was to make it readable. So a couple other questions that I want to know. So you had to farm, you farmed out, uh, that's a bad way to put it, but you gave, you, you found people who were experts in particular things and let, so I had a number of them. Yeah. Right. So when someone writes something on something that you don't know a lot about, you like, you have to get me some of that to taste or you have to get me like, like some of the st- uh, different spirits or like most of the spirits I've tasted. Uh, however, uh, I did have to, uh, I had to write the, uh, one of the articles on West Africa and uh, on uh, palm spirits there. And I finally broke down and uh, talked to my friend, uh, Colin Appia, who's a, a Ghanaian. And he got some, oh, some uh, akpatache from his, uh, from his uncle in, in, in Ghana, and, uh, which is this beautiful palm spirit or can be beautiful. And uh, I still have a little bit of that. He, I just got this. He got me this tiny little bottle of it, which was amazing of him. So what did it taste like? Uh, it's uh, it tastes like palm wine. You know, it's it's got a it's a little bit lactic, a little bit uh, acidic, uh, clean and fresh and uh, really, really quite nice. Uh, not so heavily flavored. Uh, it, it's palm spirits can be fairly neutral. Uh, which is interesting, kind of like grape spirits. Yeah, I guess they yeah they run the gamut. Depends on how they're. Yeah. yeah. Uh, another thing, I noticed that some of the things I thought would be in here aren't necessarily. And uh, like for instance, I was not able. I searched through it to find a reference on dive bars or that style of thing. That that category of different categories of bars isn't necessarily. Well, it's in not. There. Yeah, because it's it's spirits and cocktails. It's not a, a bar. It's not the Oxford Companion to bars. Now that would be a book. <laughs> I would I would want to be the dive bar editor on that one. Well, I mean, I know that you're a huge proponent of dive bars. I was I was like hoping to find you know kind of your history of the dive bar in there. Yeah, it just it wasn't in my uh, my brief as the uh, yeah. as the people at Oxford would say. I mean, you I I always assume that you would prefer to be at a dive bar than a not at a dive bar. I I like dive bars quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. Now, actually, I mean, you know, I like a nice cocktail bar, too, but I really like dive bars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like a dive bar. I like, I like a dive you bar. know, I like a comfortable dive bar. I, it doesn't, I, li- I like a dive bars in the afternoon when it's quiet and uh, it's you and the bartender. Yeah. I always think of, I, I, I was in D.C. once and I walked, uh, I was uh, doing a, a bar crawl for Esquire and I thought I'd start at the Raven Inn up and in kind of kind of north of uh of downtown and uh, i had to walk a mile in the snow to get there and i go in and there's only one person sitting at the bar it's the middle of the afternoon and within 10 minutes me the bartender and this one person were discussing like how people raise kids like crap these days uh what the japanese aims were in the central pacific during world war ii um uh what kind of tires work best in snow and about 20 other things and we were just having the greatest time, you know. <laughs> you know, I love an old, I love an old uh, dive bar. Nastasi and I went to my old dive bar, and I, we had an okay time, right, Stas? We went before the Billy Joel concert too. Yeah. There was the bar fight that broke out while we were there. <laughs> That's true. Uh, wait, wait, which bar was this? Holland. <laughs> oh yeah. And, and then we went to uh, before we had gone to like to Nastasia's old dive bar, and someone there tried to order me 
What the, what the hell did that guy oh, try to Oh, it was s- the Jack Daniels Honey oh, one, yeah. right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's not so good. Oh, it's just a horrific product. <laughs> yeah. And, but um, it's more horrifying that, that, that this guy at the bar thought that, A, that Nastasia couldn't order for me. Yeah. yeah. That's the first thing. I was like, uh, excuse me, she knows much more about liquor than you yeah, do. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then... That he thought looked at me that and was, was like, good stuff. Yeah. and that's it's what like, I was oh, gonna yeah. want. Yeah, that, that's a honey like, guy. <laughs> yeah, and then we went to a third dive bar. Wait, which bar was that? I gotta know. The Gaff. Okay. And then we went to a third bar and got taken for tourists and got the tourist rate at the dive bar, and that pissed me off. Oh, that was that, so upsetting. Well, you were a tourist at that dive bar. I was, Clearly. although I used to live around, I lived around the corner from it for five years. I didn't go to it because I went to the Holland. Yeah. Okay. You know what I mean? Well, see, you, you weren't, you weren't one of the, that dive bars but the, people. But the, the, the bartender looked at us, right, John? Oh, she just, yeah. And just freaking, freaking. It was like $47 for three drinks or oh, something. Oh, yeah. Bad okay. dive bar I mean, drinks. Yeah. And yeah, I was like, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. like, hello. Excuse me. Excuse yeah. Yeah, You know, like, Yeah. Uh, you, you know, you you, you yeah. should have showed your face in there a few times. <laughs> I haven't lived in that neighborhood in like 18 years. So you were a tourist. <laughs> I mean, I guess. But, you know, Lower East Side isn't yeah. a tourist in Midtown. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like, yeah, I yeah. don't know. Oh, that's I, funny, though. That's funny. God. Oh, ouch. Yeah. All right. So some more Umbridge while we're at Umbridge. Yeah. Oh, not this. I like that. You, you generously. So at the book launch, Dave uh, generously signed all of the books that people stole. I think I didn't get no, you to sign this. For- yeah, they were they were there for the taking. Yeah, I, except like, you stole yours. I did steal mine <laughs> before anyone said anyone could take anything. Yeah. I was like, I went up to the person. Publishing people are so funny because yeah. they're at the table, and the person that they put in charge of the table usually has no power. So it's mean slash fun to make them a little bit nervous. Be like, I'm, I'm going to steal this. Can I steal this? She's like, uh, I'm like, I'm going to steal this right now. I'm stealing this. Okay, and she's like, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, but that's me. Well, all's yeah, well that I, ends poorly. I, I, I'm, I'm Italian. I would go there and, like, you know, talk them out of it. But you're like the, this weird northern Italian who also knows how to speak German, right? I, I don't know how to speak German. No. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I can read it a little bit. Yeah. Uh, my German was my weakness in, in, in doing this book. All right. Let me let me see. Where's where's your where's your table of uh, weights and measures? Which smart is near the beginning of the book, which is yeah, something I, I should have done. I, it's uh, after the... After the topical, topical outline, outline I mentioned, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Anyways, a bar spoon, my friend, four milliliters, according to my count, not five milliliters. It depends on the bar spoon, doesn't it? I measured them. I mean, all right, we're going to have a bar spoon fight. Well, we're gonna... uh, for, the, for the purposes of this book, it's five milliliters. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Although I do appreciate you using the uh, cocktail ounce at 30 mils, yeah. which is something that I believe... Uh, anyone who thinks about an, a, a bar ounce being 28 point whatever is just wrong. It's 30. How are you going to measure that? You, you can't. know, that's the thing is like I tried to we, we used like 30 mil. We tried to make it. Uh, everything is, is metric in here, but we tried to make it as easily convertible to ounces uh, as possible. Yeah, the cocktail ounce is 30 milliliters. It allows us to to not look like tiny children to our yeah. uh, international exactly. compatriots. Exactly. Uh, so I do appreciate that. And then uh, also, uh, John, I don't know if you know this, uh, I am a, I'm in the molecular mixology. You know how horrible <laughs> 
molecular well, as a term is. I it, it's completely meaningless. Yeah, it's, it's, it's I a, mean, all mixology is molecular, but uh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. but but on the other hand, that's what people call it, and that's what we needed to title the entry. It's, well, uh, it's uh, you know because uh, people have to be able to find it. You know, uh, one of the uh, interesting things uh, way back in the day, uh, people tried to oppose, like make a um, kind of a a diametric opposition between people who enjoyed uh, learning about old techniques and people who uh, were more interested in new techniques. And so not just in in cocktails, but also in in food. I'm thinking John Mariani, who is, you know, horrible at that. I mean, like he might have been good at other things, but horrible about that. And also... Very rude, if he wanted to be rude person. He he could certainly be a rude person. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, rude and like I'm rude, but I hopefully not mean and rude to people that I don't know. I hopefully I'm only mean to people that I know well enough. That, <laughs> <laughs> you know, That's a hell of a distinction. Yeah, well, I mean, he was mean to his friends, but he was nice to everybody else. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I yeah. don't know. Like, I think it takes a different kind of jerk to be rude to a stranger. Oh, I think so, too. Actually, I try not to do that. Yeah, because you don't know who this stranger is or or why would you be rude to a stranger? Why would you be rude to a stranger? What have they done to you? Exactly. You know, it's uh, uh, I just uh, that 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 just doesn't compute to me. And right, so like before we get into another another interesting uh, thing you have at the at the near the end is you try, as many people have, to categorize the world of spirits. How much of a pain in the behind was that? Oh, it was interesting. That was actually kind of fun, but it was also really hard. Right, because like vodka, well, so for those of you that, oh, wait, what did you write about Bialystokers? I didn't even see that. Oh, it's just someone named Bialystok yeah. in this yeah, yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I come from the Lower East Side is where, where I live. That's that's Bialystoker Plaza. That's yeah. where, and where the Bialys were from in, the, in New York. You can't really get a good Bialy anymore. No, I haven't seen one in a while. And and they're really, they, they the last one I had was extremely boring and not very good. Yeah, Kosar's, which is uh, like on the block where I live, back before they got sold, back when, yeah. they, when they used to close down for the Sabbath, like all of the businesses did in mm-hmm. that neighborhood, they made a good Bialy. You know, a little bit dry, a little bit of onion stuff. You had to eat it the day. It yeah, was they, a couple those hours things do not keep. No. Uh, I mean, they really don't keep. They're not even good in the evening. No, you wanna, no. They, they have to be practically fresh out of the oven. Yeah, which is but what you're supposed but, to do. You know, and then they're, and they're moist, moist and delicious. delicious. Yeah, but uh, nowadays I have not had a good... Uh, I've had like these Bialis that like I think people want them to last and they shouldn't. Yeah. It's like this idea of shelf-stable. Nothing should be shelf stable unless it's in a can. Look, and I hate to poo-poo this. The other thing is like, Kosars uh, used to have a decent bagel. I thought, like back in the day. I haven't. It's not. It's not in my circuit. I, you know, I'm in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so you have your own decent bagels, but yeah, th- they exactly. went from being uh, kind of a, a normal bagel. So if you're going to think about bagels on the 1980s spectrum of H&H to Essa, that, that right, kind of right, dichotomy, right? right. right? Uh, they went from being kind of the denser, small, not union bagel size, but, you know, reasonable yeah. size yeah, bagel, yeah. chewy and dense. Yeah. I got one last time, literally, I thought it was a football. It was like... Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. that's not good. No hole, but like, you know, n- not even as chewy as Essa style, but just like a football, like a, like a yeah. bready football. And I was like, what? Uh, 
What? That's the end of the bagel as we know it. I mean, you I don't know. even think it's called Kosar's Bialis anymore. I think it's just called Kosar's now. Yeah, because nobody knows what a Bialy is. No one knows what a Bialy is. <laughs> uh, well, can I say something else not related to cocktails? Anyone who's listening, if you're going to open a bagel store, store, right? Or a store. Or a store with a shtick. Yep. Please, please, separate lines for the people like me who just want to come in and buy bagels, separate line from the people who want you to manipulate their bagel. I don't know why anyone would want a bagel shop to manipulate their bagel for them, but fine. You know what I mean? It's like, it's hey, like- Hey, you manipulated my bagel. <laughs> exactly. I mean, like, I got to stand behind someone who's like, what kind of cream cheese do you want on your bagel? I don't care. I'm just buying a dozen bagels and getting the hell mm -hmm. out of here. Make separate lines. What do you think about this? I would love to see that because I just want the bagel. I just want the bagel. I toast it at home if yeah. I want it toasted. Also, New Yorkers- I don't want them to toast it. Do we have a, a, yeah. a, a New Yorkers- Take note, when you come to, or non-New Yorkers, when you come to New York and order a bagel, because we hate being ripped off, they're going to put too much cream cheese on your bagel if you have had the bagel shop do it. Like a crazy amount of cream cheese. Do you, do you hate the fact that they put so much cream cheese on bagels here? Uh, I don't hate it. It's so much so messy. I don't know. I, I like I like butter on my bagels these days. Ah. So that's, you know, that's that's me. Nastasia, what do you think about butter on a bagel? No, not, not really. No? Mm -mm. What about toasting? Where are we on toasting? Bagel side only, of course. I mean, cut yeah, side. Yeah, I, I like it toasted really? with butter. Toasted bagel oh. with butter is my huh. favorite. Huh. I know that's you yeah, know completely wrong answer. in every way, but that's still what I like. Wait, Jack, what'd you say? Toasted bagel with butter is my answer as well. This yeah. is why you moved to Los Angeles. Yeah, I think I, I spent a year <laughs> in Los Angeles, and that probably corrupted me. I think, like, look, if you've, if, if you've been relegated to, like, you know, eating lenders... Then sure, split and toast that sucker and put butter on it. You know what's actually good? I uh, going against myself here. A buttered salt salt bagel. Oh, that would be good. Yes, I would. I would oh, eat yeah. that. Yeah, I would eat that right now. All right. Speaking of uh, eating right now, uh, you've just poured us. Before we go further in depth into these things, you wanted to uh, describe what we're, uh, we're yeah, drinking. I, I brought a little bit of rum that uh, my friend Alexander uh, from uh, Plantation Rum uh, sent me. This is made in uh, one of the two operating three-chamber stills in the world. That's a type of still that nobody really, that, that had fallen out of the distilling industry's consciousness, used in America from the beginning of the 19th century up until World War II. And uh, it's, uh, it's sort of a, if a, a pot still, the kind of, you know, bootlegger still we think of, if that's a muzzle-loading gun and uh, the column still like they make vodka on is a machine gun you know you just feed the stuff in and it comes out the other end this is sort of like a bolt action rifle it's like you got to load each each charge but it's got a bunch of them stacked up to be distilled inside the inside the still does he does the uh, analogy take over to accuracy too? bolt action rifles extremely accurate weapons. yeah this is extremely accurate in terms of flavor <laughs> this gets the most flavor uh, I, I mean maybe uh, it's different from a pot still it's a little lighter but the stuff stays in for a long time and gets steam run through it. And uh, this is uh, this is from the uh, Vulcan, which is a Cincinnati manufacturer, uh, three-chamber still that they have at the uh, West Indies Rum Distilleries in Barbados that they found uh, rusting away in a corner and, uh, and, and, and refurbished and have been using. What's the proof on that guy? Uh, it's 51%. Uh, well, 
I would I would have guessed that it wasn't quite that hot. I would have guessed like 45, so it doesn't drink as hot as it is. No. But it's got a lot of flavor to it though. Yeah, it's got like a it's weird, it's got some fruitiness to it. Yeah, it does. That's what really comes out is like kind of the mid-range and and the base flavors. It's very good for that. There's a lot of body for it. What do you guys think? I like it a lot. That's not anyone taste. I have to drive. Hassan, are you willing to drink out of my cup? I know, I don't know how you feel post corona. Uh, I've already had it and I'm if, boosted. If there's something else we could pour it in, also we could do that. There you go. <laughs> All right. There we go. Uh, huh? This is a, this is unobtainium, huh? Uh, right now it is. I, I'm sure it'll be on the market soon, but uh, aged oh aged in a chestnut barrel. Oh well, so it further unobtainium. Yeah. yeah. This is like this is everything that I geek out about in 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 one in one bottle, basically. Where do you stand on uh, GMO chestnut trees? <laughs> Uh, I have not thought about them one iota, uh-huh. but uh, if they're using them, I'm not for them. Oh, I'm I'm for GMO chestnut trees. What are they using them for? Not uh, nothing. They just wanna they want to have American chestnuts back. You know oh, what I, I, mean? I see what you mean. Yeah, okay. So like you know what they've done is they've they've uh, made a GMO chestnut that um, that will that will resist the uh, will resist the blight. The blight. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so you know in other respects because it hasn't been back crossed with. Uh, Chinese chestnuts. Yeah, it is an actual American chestnut tree. It's just resistant, and so yeah, that 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 doesn't bother me as I'm much. I'm for it. Yeah, yeah, because uh, uh, you know it would be nice if they could get back elm trees also. I mean, look, which are, which are beautiful. I, I mean, what what trees are going to be left? Like uh, the hemlocks are, are dying, and that was the great uh, you know after we killed after we cut down all of the white pine. Yeah. Uh you know hemlock was uh you know in this area over where John, you know's parent you know mom lives is uh that was all hemlock and that has all died because of an invasive bug. All of the ash trees here are dying left and no, right. No, we we live in a, in you know basically one big species invasion. Yeah. You know, it's it's like D-Day. I, I mean the invasions are huge and and well supported and they won't stop and every every uh plant in the world is going to meet its its worst enemy it's it's uh, it's scary yeah i mean like uh, the only ones that survive are the ones that aren't dense enough to get nuked by, uh, yeah. by an invader or... And, or that are just like hella weeds <laughs> yeah know? yeah but look you know we might even lose i mean i'd like to find a kudzu pest oh my god well do you have any property down south have you ever had a kudzu problem no but i've i've, I've driven you know i've traveled through the south a lot and holy hannah in the 80s, when cable TV first came about, yeah. uh, HBO, I think, was one of the first things on, on cable. And they only ran movies like uh, from like 3 p.m. Yeah, to like, I remember. Yeah. And they used to have shorts. So one of them was on kudzu. And it yeah. implanted in my mind as a kid this horror of kudzu that t- endures to this day. Well, I mean, you drive through like parts of rural Mississippi and see it just... Covering whole fields, including the houses that used to stand in them or still stand and are completely covered. And just it, it's, it's like this. It's like a fungus on the face of the earth. Yeah. You know, yeah, well, it's you amazing. Know, it's one of those things that the railroad brought. Yeah. You know, they, they thought it was going to stop railroad embankments from falling down. Yeah, it was anti, it's good for it's good ground cover. Yeah. It's really good ground cover. Also in the <laughs> 80s, I should go look at it. Remember. Um, so for those of you that aren't, you know, that are younger, which is basically everybody, uh, you know, who's listening the um in the 80s you used to read magazines this was something that you did and like this was a valid way of finding information because there was no internet you bought the almanac every year and you yeah. read magazines 
Smithsonian Magazine was an interesting magazine in the 80s. It still is. I mean, I just don't read magazines anymore. Yeah. You used to write for an interesting magazine in the 90s and yeah. 2000s. Yeah, in the 2000s. Yeah. I wrote for Esquire, which yeah. was great. And the, yeah. The 90s, I wrote for The Village Voice, which was great. Oh, my God. Remember when The Village Voice, like, what happened? How did that just fall off of the... Well, you know, the internet took away all their classified ads. Yeah. And that, and those ads were, were what paid the people's salaries. So, right. Peter Kim from the Museum of Food and Drink, Nastasia Lopez and I were driving up to do a lecture at... What was that? Was that Williams? Yeah. We're going to Williams. And we were driving up there, and he's like... You guys got to be quiet. I'm doing a very important interview. This is after, like, the Village Voice mm-hmm. was on its last legs. And, and Nastasia was like, who's it with? Peter goes, Village Voice. Nastasia starts laughing. And I go, worth, worth, Village Voice, worth every penny. This is after it had gone yeah, completely yeah. free. Oh, man. Remember that, Stas? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I was almost their music editor, which would have been really interesting. Well, also, small known fact, you were a bassist. I was a, ba- I was a bassist for... Ten years, but you prefer chunk a chunk of bass. You don't like uh, you don't. You're not a super flamboyant bass guy. Like you're not a Larry Graham aficionado. I'm not a Jaco Pastorius, Larry Graham aficionado. No, I'm more like. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, How do you put Pastorius and Larry Graham together? I mean, right. I get it. They're they both play a lot of notes. I'm going to forcefully interject here. We should get to some questions. In five minutes. What? Yeah. yeah. I haven't even asked my questions. All right, well, I'll ask the Patreon questions. questions. All right. Uh, from Warren Johnson, Johnston. In episode 13, around the eight-minute mark, so I want your mind, Dave, to go to the actual eight-minute mark, uh, of Life Behind Bars, it is mentioned that Count Negroni had spent time, quote, as a cowpuncher in Montana and Alberta. Can you shed some light on uh, how you discovered this or where there might be more sources referencing it? Uh, Yeah, well, there's a a book on the traces of the Count. I guess I'm, I just translated that from Italian. I can't remember what the uh, it's it's basically in the Count's footsteps. I can't remember what it's called in in, in English, by Luca Picci, P I C C H I, that tells the Count Negroni's life and uh, the life of the Negroni cocktail. It's a it's a very good book. Luca's a, a a great guy and a great researcher, a bartender in in, in Florence. But uh, there was uh, an article in. Uh, this new this newspaper columnist Bob Davis ran into Count Negroni in the twenties, uh, and uh, they got to talking. And it turns out they had friends in common in Montana. And uh, Negroni gave a whole uh, spiel about his days as a cowpuncher. And I've found in New York City uh, city directories he was in New York City. He was a fencing instructor. Uh, he was evidently a uh, a gambler here. He was a very sporty individual. He uh, he definitely led the sporting life in New York and out west, and uh, so there there is some evidence. Uh, it's you know, it's mostly his recollection, but it checks out uh, because he remembered the people that Bob Davis remembered. So so that's uh, that's kind of interesting. Uh, two quick uh, follow-ups on that. One, every bartender. I know you said Florence, but every bartender in Milan's name is Luca. Discuss and two, when you uh, I think. It's been when you first started working in history, the Internet didn't have everything digitized. There's still not everything digitized, but there's a there's lot a lot more. And you mentioned that actually in the introduction, how that kind of I wouldn't say makes life easier, but just gives more information for you to have primary sources. But I think we all know from the past four or five years, no matter what side of the political debate you're on, that just because something is written, don't make it 
true or unbiased. So when you're reading someone who has all the biases of the 1880s in their Mm -hmm. own head, how hard is it to actually get what you find to be truthful or good or solid information out of primary resource? I I try to confirm everything I can. You know, my, my motto is chase down every rabbit. And, you know, every everything they say, I, I double check it and and, you know, try to find other sources to confirm it. And sometimes I can't. And then it's basically this is what I learned in graduate school is weighing sources. I, I was I, I specialized in ancient uh, scientific poetry and, and uh, that was my dissertation. And a lot of those things, we only have the poem, you know. We don't know anything about anything other than that. And confirming stuff is is basically a judgment call. But you learn a certain amount of judgment. So I can't remember whether you wrote the section on adulteration in here or whether it was somebody else. Uh, Neither can I. <laughs> yeah, but like, but like the interesting thing specifically about things like adulteration is is that I find in any historical first, you know, uh, writing about things like that, they're usually heavily anti-other, heavily kind of racist, anti-foreigner, right, right, and right. Uh, fear of the unknown, and often just kind of wrong, right? Not the section of adultery here, but I'm saying like that specific topic just popped to mind because I was looking through it today. But well, it's like, it gets into issues of corruption, <clears throat> and then that gets people started, you know? Yeah. And we, we, see, we see what people think is corruption these days is just, you know, it, it's complicated. Yeah, but, very uh, complicated, yeah. From Jonathan Oberhaus, milk clarification. Uh, does lactose intolerance still apply since the method increases cocktail longevity? I've noticed flavor intensifies and improves with time, but for how long before it degrades? Sincerely, someone who drinks too fast to wait and see. You should always drink cocktails quickly, but in moderation. In <laughs> that, my, that's about right. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. moderation's the hard part. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but, but uh, the solution is smaller cocktails quicker. Yeah, anyway. I don't know about the, the, the lactose personally because... Uh, uh, I, I think you're getting rid of all the solids. Right, of but the all lactose the milk stays. Lactose yeah, stays. Yeah, the last, lactose is a sugar, so that's going to stay. Yeah, the, the the real point, Jonathan, is uh, a, it, it's a matter of quantity. If someone truly can't have any lactose at all, then it's going to be a problem. But the, the amount of milk and milk punch is usually quite small per volume of liquid consumed. So, you know, it's not like pounding a thing of ice cream. It's Yeah, it, exactly. It's it, it's It's really... It's pretty. It's not negligible, but it's very small. Yeah. Uh, from Miguel Kuntz, I recently purchased uh, Tempest, Tempest Fugit's Creme de Banane. Can you say that with some French, John? Creme de Banane. Thank you. Also, you have five minutes. Merci bien. Uh, oh, I'm winning because I had five minutes five minutes ago. I have won. Uh, <laughs> I, I love it. Uh, can uh, Dave Wondrich please talk about some of its historic uses, cocktail recipes, etc.? Thanks. Uh, there aren't a lot of cocktail... Actually... I got to confess something here. I loathe bananas, so I've never really looked into creme de banane. Ah, uh, in so, general? Yeah, I just, I, I can't take their flavor. Huh. And uh, I do not like, uh, I, I just don't like them. And so I don't like banana-flavored liqueur. What about, but, fa- what about fake banana? What about Laffy Taffy? No, nasty. What about that song, Laffy Taffy? Terrible. Well, that's bad, too, for different reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's more for... for, for it's that, a terrible song. That messes with your ear, not your digestion. Yeah, and but, now it's going through yeah, my head. But uh, but in general, I'm, I, I there are very few recipes that uh, that are classic cocktails uh, or or from the classic period. There are no like big classic cocktails that use it, and very few 
in the past. It was not commonly used, that's for sure. It, uh, commonly used in cocktails. It turns up occasionally, but it's pretty rare. Uh, Tempest Fugit uh, does great stuff in all their liqueurs, though, so I'm sure it's a great product. It's just not, unfortunately. Uh, I, this is this is like my kryptonite, and uh, you just unerringly put your finger right on it. <laughs> well, there you know, uh, I have to say, Miguel, kudos for coming yeah. up. Uh, now, now the world knows. <laughs> yeah, yeah, now the world knows. You tried to keep it a secret. Yeah, everybody's going to uh, give me those drinks with the... Uh, with the bananas cut to look like dolphins on them and, and all that stuff. <laughs> I went through a period in my life when I thought that I would give people things that they hated, but I would be the one that mm. made the, it's not, it's don't do that. Don't Just do that. Give people mean. stuff that it's mean and dumb. Yeah. Life is hard for everybody. Why make it harder for them? Yeah. Oh, one more. Uh, John, do we have any more questions for specifically for Dave? We should do one more. That is good for, for the two of you uh, okay. from, from Josh S. Okay. Quick question. I will soon begin designing a bar build-out, about 24 seats, and a 130-seat restaurant. It's a new build-out completely from scratch. I'm interested to know what are some of your favorite touches behind a bar for ease of use, efficiency, or just fun? Good bartenders. Good bartenders. <laughs> are the, are, that's the most fun part. Uh, other than that, you know, if you can uh, uh, get a potato cannon mount there. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, that, that's that's impractical. Yeah. I recognize that. I, I don't know if my old partner Don Lee is still doing uh, bar layout consulting work, but he has some very good bar layouts. Yeah, um, you know, uh, Nastasi and I were looking at a bar. Uh, keep make sure everyone has a rinse sink. Make every station identical. Wait, did I say this? Make every station identical. That way, the bartender can just show up at any of the stations on your bar and act, you know, not be pre, you know, preoccupied with figuring out where the stuff is yeah, and can just advice. focus on the on yeah. the guests. Good rinsers. I, I mean, in terms of like uh, aesthetic stuff, I always like to see a shelf of books behind the bar mm. because that tells me that the bartenders are, are actually, you know, studying their drinks and, you know, I can order things that I might not otherwise order. Um I like to see a shelf of, of weird bottles of stuff. Mm -hmm. I like to see I like to see the liquor displayed behind the bar. What about foot rails? Uh, foot rails are good. Uh, my favorite bars are stand up bars uh, where there are no stools. But I, I recognize that that's impractical. But uh, God, I love those. What do you call this thing? The thing that you rest your uh, arm on? What do you call that? That big round thing that the Labatt Balkan bars had. That big molding uh, it, it must thing. have a name, but I, I don't know what it is. Are you for it or against it? I don't mind that at all. It stops your drink from falling down and gives yeah. you something to lean on. Yeah, that's that's good. But, yeah. you know, I can lean on anything. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, do, do you like alternative materials or do you prefer wood mahogany? I, I like a nice polished wood bar, I have to say. Uh, on the other hand, my I think the most beautiful bar I know is at uh, Camperino in, in uh, Milan, which is an S-shaped bar of, of, of uh, kind of an open S. Of, of great size, and it's a single casting in pewter. Oh, my God. It's glorious. And from 1910. Uh, I, you know, uh, Museum of Food and Drink has Lutessa's old bar, which is oh my God. in yeah. pewter. Yeah. And, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's cool. It's uh, cool. I mean, that that's that's a thing of... It, it, if you want to see a beautiful bar, look at Camperino. It's got mosaics of parrots behind the bar. I enjoy parrots. Yeah, I like parrots. And, and it just... 
the the gaudiness and beauty of it is 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 quite something. I was talking to a, a falconer the other day. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and uh, I asked them because falcons apparently can uh, deal with different people, whereas parrots usually they they like one person only. Yeah, and everybody else they're very mean to. Yeah, and I was like, I wonder whether that's because falcons are predators and parrots are prey. So they they don't feel like they can be kind of connected to more than yeah. one. H- having done falconry, they're the most arrogant animals I've ever seen in my life. More than us? On par. More than, well, Congress people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one last thing. So you wrote the section, because I checked, on the Rob Roy, and you seem to like it, even though it is a terrible cocktail. It's not a terrible cocktail. It is the worst of all the Bite Manhattans. Your tongue, Dave it's Arnold. the worst of all the Manhattans. <laughs> no, it's not. It it's is a, a delicious horrible drink. drink. I love I, I love Rob Roy's. I was at Gage and Tolner the other day for a friend's birthday and they had a Rob Roy on the thing. And I asked the guy, I was like, has anyone ever ordered one and liked it? It is a garbage drink. Yeah, I, my hand is up for those of you in the audience. I order it every time I go there. Come on, man. Oh, it's a great drink. Are you kidding? You should have just said Dave Wondrich orders it and that would be like, oh. But like, yeah, I, I drink that. I drink those with pleasure. So for those of you that don't home. know, it's you take a perfectly good drink, the Manhattan, which, you know. And you make it into a different drink. With scotch. Ah! Well. You I, do say that it's the only. Scotch is very hard to mix into cocktails. It's hard to mix with because it's very pungent because any anything pot stilled is going to be hard to mix into cocktails. Well, citrus It's not makes just it because of scotch. Yeah. No, it's, it's really, it's because of the depth of flavor. Like, try mixing with baijiu. Woo! Uh, yeah. One time uh, we were doing that at the at the bar, existing conditions, because yeah. there was a Baiju uh, rep coming through, and the entire bar was like, "What's happened?" Yeah, and we're no, like, it, "It's Baiju, sh- shut up!" It's it's the baby poop uh, aroma, yeah, yeah. and I like Baiju. I actually I drink it gladly, and I'll drink it, but I, but I drink it neat with with Chinese food. It, it actually works, uh, can work well in citrus cocktails if you push everything. If you just if you're just like, yes, you know what else is, it, it works great at is uh, a couple drops out of an eyedropper in a Manhattan. Really? It's just wild. If you use like Mao Tai, like a really yeah. good aromatic one, huh. it's like it just adds this thing going on. You don't know what it is, but it's it's like adding meat to it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Dave, we're going to have to have you back on. Right, so I'll come wait, back. Wait, wait, so yeah. if you like the Rob Roy, Dave, what's the worst Manhattan variant? Uh, the one where they treat vermouth like they do in martinis and put in a teaspoonful. Huh. That is just nasty. They didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, oh, that, that it was a thing back yeah. when vermouth was always stale, but yeah. I didn't know that was still a thing. It's still a thing. The country is bigger than than uh, than you think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so we'll have you back on. Uh, you Gladly come back. You didn't write the section on uh, cocktails in the movies, so I won't I won't torture you about James Bond or why he had his martini shaken. Or what what the hell sense that makes? That wasn't your section to write, but no, it I makes think no you thought sense. it would be colder. Okay. That was Ian Fleming, you know. Yeah, it's a cold man. Yeah, he wanted, he wanted it cold. All right. All right. Martini is a drink best served cold. It is. Yeah. Like revenge. Yeah, much like revenge. Which uh, Reven- I, Here's to revenge and martinis. Revenge and martinis. I learned that phrase from uh, Ricardo Fuck. Montalban in <laughs> uh, in uh, Star, uh, Star Trek uh, to the Wrath of Khan. Yeah, well, there you go. One of the great movies of all time. Dave, uh, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Dave, Nastasia, John. Thank Cheers. Thank you. Cooking issues. Cheers.